2: There's been a lot of talk about fake news lately, with recent political and social events making us aware of those who are blatantly passing off news as real. My librarian colleagues have also been talking about fake news, and our discussion has centered on what we can do to help people be critical of the information they receive. We hope that developing information literacy skills can help assure that children learn how to navigate our world that is constantly inundated with information, some of it good and other parts of it not so good. One skill we have been discussing is how to help children and teens determine authority. With information, one of the things you have to determine is if the author or distributor is qualified to give that information. For example, if you were going to get information on medical treatments, it would be apparent that a nurse would be more qualified to give you that information than a truck driver. The same principle holds true for all kinds of information, including the news we read. However, the tricky part today is that much of what we consume is online, where it is really difficult to tell who is giving you the information, let alone if they are qualified to do so. Years ago, when our news came in discrete packages like newspapers or magazines, we had a pretty good system that allowed editors and publishers to make sure that there was at least some authority to the information being published. But with the internet, anyone can publish anything, and it can be really easy for them to mask their qualifications. Producers of fake news really try hard to make their sites and posts look just like real news sites. So what can we do to make sure we are finding the best information from the best sources? To start, check out the URL to determine what kind of site you're accessing. Then look closely to find the exact author of the information. If you can't find a name author, or if there's no real credentials for the website, chances are the information is suspect and you really should look further. This is just the start, but if recent events have shown us anything, it is that being able to assess information's authority is a critical skill that we here at Rachel's World know is one thing that we as concerned adults can help children master. Listening to someone reading
1: a story out loud can be magical. When done well, it can transport us to another world reading aloud might be with a child at bedtime with a friend or spouse or in groups our guest today rob ekman reads aloud on a regular basis to children during story time at the king's english bookshop in salt lake city ekman's known as the genius storyteller emperor of the kids room and best wearer of the dr seuss hat whatever you call him he's clearly in his element when reading aloud at the King's English Bookshop, where he also serves as the marketing manager, here's
3: Rob Ekman. I'm sitting here in the King's English Bookstore with Rob Ekman. How are you doing today?
4: Great. Thanks for having me on the show.
3: Storytelling is, especially reading, is a interesting thing to get into. And so could you tell us just the story of how you came to this place? Because it's, it's such a fun job. I've seen you in your element and I, I just want to know how you got from, from just a college kid or just a high school kid reading these books to what you do now.
4: Well, I came back to Salt Lake City where I was born and raised when I was 30 years old to get my degree. I went to work at Barnes and Noble as a community relations manager to help put myself through school. And in that capacity, I found myself responsible for story time and had a storyteller not show up one day, so I had to step in. And it wasn't very long before I realized that I had a real knack for reading stories aloud to kids. I could keep little tiny ones. I could keep toddlers and two- and three-year-olds. I could keep their attention for 45 minutes, and a lot of that I learned was by the way I read, with a slow, fun tone, and with as much excitement as I could. And then came Dr. Seuss. I found myself being invited to schools to read to different groups of kids, especially around Christmas. So, of course, I would read a couple of books, plus The Grinch. And it was while reading The Grinch that I found that I could kind of deconstruct these stories and retell them in a way that is not accentuating the rhyme, but on dramatizing the story. And that has been the hook that I have used with Dr. Seuss ever since. So Dr. Seuss is
3: definitely your go-to. That's your bread and butter when it comes to reading. What is it What is it just about his style that makes it so conducive to reading aloud and keeping kids, as you said, keeping their attention right there on you?
4: First of all, I think that Dr. Seuss comes with a reputation. Mom and dad, grandma have all heard of Dr. Seuss. When I pull out Green Eggs and Ham, the whole room oohs and oz, we know that story. And then when I begin, immediately I start by creating characters. Uh, Sam I Am is his own little guy. Uh, all of the different elements of the story take on, their, take on lives of their own. And I find that the kids just love it. In fact, in many story times, I ask the kids to read along with me when they can. And that turns into a raucous little game of remembering the rhymes and the order they come in. The instant I'd finished, I heard a jump. And I looked. I saw something pop out of the stump of the tree I'd chopped down. It was sort of a man. Hmm? Describe him? That's hard. I don't know if I can. He was shortish and oldish and brownish and mossy. And he spoke with a voice that was sharpish and bossy. Mr., he said with a sawdusty sneeze, I am the Lorax. I speak for the trees. I speak for the trees, for the trees have no tongues. And I'm asking you, sir, at the top of my lungs. He was very upset, and he shouted, puffed. What's that thing that you've made from my truffle a-tuft? Look, Lorax, I said. There's no cause for alarm. I chopped just one tree. I'm doing no harm. I'm being quite useful. This thing is a thneed. A thneed's a find something that all people need. It's a shirt. It's a sock. It's a glove. It's a hat. But it has other uses. <laughs> yes, far beyond that. You can use it for carpets, for pillows, for sheets, or curtains, or covers for bicycle seats. The Lorax said, Sir, you are crazy with greed. There is no one on earth who would buy that fool sneed. But the very next minute I proved he was wrong, for just at that moment, a chap came along and he thought that the feed that I knitted was great, and he happily bought it for 398
3: Tell us a little bit of the story behind this man that created this slew of books that are just so ingrained in every kid's childhood.
4: Well, Dr. Seuss was born the child of a German immigrant, a brewmaster, and was. Born and raised in Massachusetts. He grew up and went to Dartmouth where he was the editor of the school Paper. He went into the army and then after the army became an advertising man. He was quite famous for his DEET campaign, which of course was about an insecticide. Um, he began writing in the 40s and really struggled with getting his books published. There's a great story about Dr. Seuss and his classic green eggs and ham. Dr. Seuss was challenged by Serf Bennett, his editor, to create a beginning reader using only 50 words. Dr. Seuss thought it would be an easy bet to win and began writing the book, but then found it to be incredibly difficult. But in the end, he won with the green eggs and ham, which is a book told with only 50 words. And it goes on, and and his books uh, continued to to develop. Dr. Seuss was unique in the publishing world, and still is to this day, in that he had complete creative control over all of his projects from beginning to end. He would not only be the author and have the final word on every word published. But he had complete control over the illustrations, the colors that went into the illustrations and also the marketing that went into the books, um, after publication. So he had a lot at stake, but history shows that he was right in almost all of his decisions. And now we have a tremendous collection of nearly 44 books
3: and, and that just amazes me that he has such a unique style in the way that he constructs his words and his sentence and his poetry. But then also his illustrations are just as unique. And that was 100%
4: Seuss as well. That was all Seuss. And he would struggle. He lived in La Jolla, California, spending countless hours on these books in practical isolation. Um, interesting point about Dr. Seuss is he was not much of a children's man he loved writing for young people and for children but he was actually scared of children so he s- so in his later years he spent a fair amount of time writing but then sequestering himself away from the very people he was writing for
3: and that's that's sad to hear because he's so beloved now and and if he could see the the impact that his books have had for so many years and they're still making you showed you you showed me your whole collection of seuss books um here in the bookstore and one even includes a recent seuss book that that came out of just old writings i mean the the man has been passed away for a time but he we're still seeing new products come from him
4: dr seuss passed away in 1990 but in 2015 A new Dr. Seuss picture book was published called, What Pet Should I Get?, and experts at Random House, his publisher, maintain that What Pet Should I Get?, was probably written right before One Fish, Two Fish, Red Fish, Blue Fish, and in fact includes the same characters. So yes, even years after Dr. Seuss has passed away, it's thrilling that new Dr. Seuss titles are still emerging. So Horton kept sitting there, day after day, and soon it was autumn. The leaves blew away, and then came the winter, the snow, and the sleet, and icicles hung from his trunk and his feet. But Horton kept sitting and said with a sneeze, I'll stay on this egg and I won't let it freeze. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful, 100%.
3: Every every single Dr. Seuss has what you're talking about, has these exciting rhymes, and has this reputation, but what is your personal favorite to read to the kids?
4: I think my favorite is The Sneetches. The Sneetches, of course, is the story about sneetches with stars on their bellies or not and a crazy inventor comes to the beach and offers them a trip through his star on or star off machine to put them on or take them off and it turns into a crazy riotous ride toward the end and it's my favorite because it's short because the rhymes are flawless he introduces us to the word thars instead of theirs and the kids' eyes open so big as these crazy sneeches go in and out, having the stars taken on and off. I really get a lot of a lot of joy from watching that, watching the kids. Then, then, well, of course, from then on, as you probably guess, things really got into a horrible mess. All the rest of that day on those wild, screaming beaches. The fix-it-up chappy kept fixing up sneetches. Off again, on again, in again, out again. Through the machine, they raced round and around again, changing their stars every minute or two. They kept paying money. They kept running through until neither the plane nor the star-bellied knew whether this one was that one or that one was this one or which one was what one or what one was who. Then... When every last cent of their money was spent, the fix-it-up chappie packed up and he went. And he laughed as he drove in his car up the beach. Ha! They never will learn. No, you can't. Teach a sneetch. But McBean was quite wrong. I'm quite happy to say that the Sneeches got really quite smart on that day. The day they decided that Sneeches are Sneetches and no kind of Sneech is the best on the beaches. That day all the Sneeches forgot about stars and whether they had one or not upon bars. The end. Dr. Seuss is an icon in children's literature and it is very worth our while to go back and give him another chance. Thank you so
3: much, Rob. It's been a, it's been a pleasure.
4: <laughs> Thank you very much.
1: Rob Ekman, storyteller at the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City, talking to Cole Wissinger of World's Awaiting about his experience sharing books with children, especially those by Dr. Seuss. Next on World's Awaiting, a visit with illustrator author Julie Olson, Olson has illustrated many books, including Discover America from Sea to Shining Sea, Dear Cinderella by Marianne Moore and Mary Jane Kensington, and Little Penguin, the Emperor of Antarctica by Jonathan London. Julie Olson also has an interactive website that offers tips for aspiring writers, young and old, from learning how to draw to keeping business records. She also talks about the variety of mediums she works in to create her picture book illustrations. Here's Julie and Rachel.
2: We're talking with Julie today, who is an author and illustrator of picture books. And one of the coolest things that I think that has been happening in the field of children's books lately is the fact that we have the internet now, and there's such great ways on the internet for authors and illustrators to interact with their fans on the internet. And I know you have a website. So tell us a little bit about your website and what you offer on it.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of picture book authors and illustrators don't have quite the fans as say Twilight, Stephanie Meyer, Um, young adult (laughs) writers. That's a fan. That's a fan. That's a fan thing. (laughs) But I do have a website which has quite a few things on it for kids and adults alike. I have specific parts that are specifically for kids. If you go to my website, which is julieolsonbooks.com, and Olson is spelled with an O-N. A lot of people spell that wrong. (laughs) So julieolsonbooks.com. And if kids click on fun stuff, there is a whole page of how to draw, kind of in the style of how I learned to draw, but things, characters from my books that they can learn to draw, but basic things for even... I guess you'd say high school students or people who are trying to learn how to draw, the basic human head. It's, it's really hard. So there's some templates and tips there for how to draw. Then there's also videos that kids or adults can watch that are clips of me either doing school visits or talking about um, how to draw. There's TV interviews, and there's also like sped up painting processes, which those are my favorite to go watch other artists and their painting process because I like to learn a little bit. Oh, I can use that in my own painting process. Anyway, the videos are fun. Kids always ask me if I really paint that fast, and I say, oh boy, do I wish. (laughs) But
2: yeah, they're sped up quite a bit. I think that's a wonderful thing because I think this is a sharing community and it really is one where everybody engages. With each other, and the internet has just made that so much easier to be able to have all of that information there. So technology really has extended that interaction. But I know you use technology a lot too, just in your drawing and um, in your in your bookwork. So explain a little bit about how you use computers to to do your art.
0: Yes, uh, I love the computers and the invention of them because <laughs> it has saved me a lot of time. The way I use technology more now is as an aid. Um, I will add to my artwork that I've hand-painted. I will adjust sketches in Photoshop, like move things, resize things. And I got the new iPad Pro, and it has a wonderful Apple Pencil on it, and I use the app Procreate to try out different things. I have been doing a little bit more of a graphic style on that, and have also tried a little bit more with pastels. I used to use those in college and whatnot, but it's, it w- it's been fun to play with pastels. I think they have a good likeness on there. Watercolors cannot be duplicated in digital media, so until then I'm definitely still hand-painting all my watercolor. However, it's fun to try out different styles and see what I might want to translate a little bit Or parts of into my work. I think that technology may help speed up some steps, but for me those steps are a little bit more in the process and the planning and not in the final artwork itself. The final artwork should still take a good amount of time to complete.
2: Talk a little bit about that kind of last stage of when you're finishing the the final painting, about how long does one of those take for you? Uh,
0: I always tell people I never time it because if I did, I would be (laughs) paid like 50 cents an hour. But I think I have gotten faster. And as you get further into a book, you get faster at it. I have learned to tape a lot of my papers down at once and do like all the background. If I it depends on what you're painting. Like the little penguin had a lot of the same color scheme throughout the whole book and so I could tape quite a few down at once and and paint here, let that dry while I'm painting the next and painting the next, but keep the same colors on my palette and get kind of an assembly line thing going. But in the end it's still Takes too many hours to count. In answer to your question,
2: that's a perfect answer. Perfect answer. And I I know it's particularly you you talk about watercolors and pastels and digital. So what are the strengths and weaknesses of each medium? Why Why would you pick one over the other?
0: So oil paint takes a really long time to dry. That's pretty much the weakness. Um, a lot of kids in college would actually bake their paintings in the oven and some would catch fire <laughs> anyway trying to finish them too fast so oil has to dry a lot in between mediums acrylic dries too fast sometimes to really for me i started out in acrylic but i felt like i was really tight and not loose enough and i really wanted to loosen up more and some people are great at um at acrylics and still being loose but it lends itself to a much more tight style. It does dry fast. It dries plastic. The advantage of it and of oil is that you can cover up any mistake that you make. However, with... Pastels, it's hard to cover up mistakes. That is a very soft medium. It's kind of grainy. So when it's printed, pastels and colored pencil, the grain intensifies. So it looks a lot more spotty and a lot more grainy than it does in the originals. So it's difficult to get them to the point where they don't look that way in the reproduction. Watercolor, um, you can't cover up your mistakes at all either. Sometimes you can wipe a little bit of it away, but it, 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 doesn't really work. You mostly just need to start over. Every parent has their kids start with watercolors and it's the most frustrating and the most difficult medium to work with because you don't know what it's going to do. You don't know how dark it's going to dry. You don't know. You have to wait till it's dry to paint next to it if you don't want it to bleed. Um, there's so many things that you have to learn by experience with watercolor that I still don't know everything watercolor's going to do or I'm able to predict some of it now like how dark this color will dry but it all depends on how much water you add to it it's it's so finicky. <laughs> um but I love the translucent nature of it. I love the the things that it does do that are unexpected. And the other drawback with watercolor is that it it you lose a lot in the translation of the reproductions. You lose some of the gradients, some of the subtle things, especially in the blues and whites that happen.
2: I think that that's a great kind of introduction because I don't think people realize the variety of technique and, and their strengths and weaknesses of them. So why do you think you were attracted mostly to watercolor? What What is it? about that that just resonates with you?
0: So even though it's really hard, and I still have a ways to go, I really love line. I love to see the gestural lines. I love to see the line of the artwork coming through. And some people don't use line in their watercolor. But I, I like line and I like to um, edge my things with line. And in the little penguin book, I used a blue pencil to, to line everything to give it that cool effect. And to make it seem cold and let that blue show through on the edges of everything. And I do watercolor because I want to see those lines and those drawings come through.
2: That's that's wonderful, and I think I think you can really tell those little touches. They just add an extra flow to that. So you said most people start their kids with watercolors, so
0: and that's stressful. So what would you start kids with? So the reason they start them with watercolor is because they're like, oh, they're I cheap. can wipe they're cheap, and I can wipe them up easy. Yeah. So I would either start them with, I would start them with acrylic. They they wash up just as well if they're wet as watercolors. They're water based, and. Um, I guess, you know, five-year-olds, maybe not. But once they are somewhat responsible it, to not paint all over everything, I would do acrylic because they can cover things up and cover up their mistakes. They can still water them down to mix like watercolors for a little bit, um, but paint over their mistakes instead of... And, and they don't soak through the paper as much as watercolors.
2: That's wonderful. I think we're going to have a lot of parents rushing out to buy (laughs) acrylics for their children today. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for your time today, Julie. Thank you.
1: Julie Olson talking about the breadth of her work as an illustrator author. We finish up the show today with a book review from Kim Christensen, teen librarian at the Springville Public Library in Utah. Christensen introduces a young adult novel entitled Six of Crows by Leigh Bardugo.
5: Six of Crows by Leigh Bardugo, and it was released end of 2015. Um, I kind of compiled a list. I'm a list girl, and I like to make points, and so I titled this one, Top Five Reasons to Completely Devour This Book. Um, For those that loved Leigh Bardugo's first series, the Grisha series, this book is set in the same world, so you'll find a lot of the same history, a lot of the same characters mentioned, um, so it'll feel familiar to you, um, but it's a whole new adventure. Um, it seems like kind of a small reason to pick up this book, but it's one of the reasons that I was first drawn to it, and you can't see it because this is the radio, um, but the pages are black, and I really, uh, you don't see that in a lot of books, you see that with um, Gregory Maguire's Wicked, and so it's it's fun, it adds character, and it really um, goes with the cover. Uh, One of the other reasons I really liked this book is it's a fantasy book, um, but it's sort of a different version on Ocean's Eleven, so imagine that movie and imagine kind of all the different characters and add a fantasy element to it. Um, they collected the best of the best, um, or maybe the worst of the worst, to try to get into um, where they don't belong. So they, they got a convict, a sharpshooter, a runaway, a spy, a thief, and a heart renderer, which is someone in this series that can damage someone's internal organs, which sounds really gruesome, um, but it's completely appropriate for teens. Um, not as dark as it may sound. Uh, The other part that I really liked, um, when I'm reading a book and I'm really into it and I want to know and I want to skip to the end, which sometimes I do, I'll admit, I I like multiple points of view. Um, There is nothing more frustrating than not knowing what's really going on. And she does a really good job in taking all the different points of views and kind of still leaving you dangling. You don't know what's happening, um, but you are inside their head. You kind of know where they're going. You know they're part of the plot and um, it makes me appreciate the characters, where they've come and where they're going. It's also what I call a soft sci-fi. I'm not really a big science fiction fantasy reader, um, but that's something I tell my kids. It's soft sci-fi. Don't be intimidated by the families. Don't be intimidated by the maps. It's not a book that you'll have to take notes on, which oftentimes when you're reading science fiction and fantasy, you've got to mark all the families, uh, take copious notes, and try to keep track of everything. It's, it's intimidating that way, but this is um, a good one for those who first want to kind of try fantasy.
1: Kim Christensen, teen librarian at the Springville Library in Utah, reviewing the young adult novel Six of Crows by Leigh Bardugo. We'll look forward to more young reader book reviews from other librarians and booksellers in the future. For a full collection of book reviews, check out the World's Awaiting Book Reviews link on our website at byuradio.org. Thanks for listening to World's Awaiting. Tune in Saturdays at 1.30 p.m. and weekdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern on BYU Radio Sirius XM Channel 143 on the TuneIn app and at byuradio.org.